Well, church family, we've been in a series of messages called Engaged since the very uh, first Sunday of October, and we are concluding that series this morning. Uh, The point of our Engaged series was to discuss just different topics ranging from uh, does God exist to how do we engage in spiritual conversations with those who uh, adhere to Islam, Uh, topics such as can I trust the Bible? And this morning we conclude this series with the question, if God loves me, why do I suffer? If God loves me, why do I suffer? And I want to begin our message this morning um, with Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Thanksgiving proclamation. During World War II in November, November 26, 1942, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt issued this Thanksgiving proclamation, and in it he spoke one of America's most sacred words. He said, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord. Across the uncertain ways of space and time, we solemnly express our dependence upon Almighty God. The final months of this year, now almost spent, find our republic waging a battle on many fronts for the preservation of And here's the sacred word, liberty. Liberty. It is one of America's most sacred words, wouldn't you agree? Liberty. It's just a staple to the American way of life. It's why millions have flocked to our shores. It is why we fight wars. Our most famous statue is named Liberty. Liberty appears on some of our money. Liberty governs the way we think and feel and move about in America. Liberty gives us individuality. Liberty allows us to do business, to buy and sell property. And liberty allows us the privilege of worshiping together here in community without being shot, without fear of persecution. Liberty. Americans love liberty. I mean, we love the liberty to choose, the liberty to speak, the liberty to vote, the liberty to express ourselves, the liberty to be individuals. I mean, just the idea, just a hint of a notion of an American losing their liberty, I mean, just induces seizures in our hearts. I mean, what if starting tomorrow morning, Every person were issued a gray-colored uniform, and they had to wear that. I mean, what would that do to liberty-loving Americans? I'm telling you, we would find a way around that. We would, we would dye it different colors, colors of, of gray. We'd put gray patches on it. We'd figure out a way to individualize that because we love liberty. We love, we love the liberty to wear what it is we want to wear because that just expresses ourselves. And that's why we dress, you know, look around the room. That's why we dress so diversely here at Windsor Road. I mean, we have, we've got the business look. We've got the preppy look. We've got the urban look, the denim look, the biker look, the cowboy look. We've got high fashion, low fashion, no fashion. We're all here at Windsor Road. Our liberty... Our liberty doesn't come from Washington. Our liberty comes from heaven. The God of heaven and earth created us 
with the capacity to choose. And had he wanted to, he could have created every one of us identically. I mean, we would have just been identical androids, you know. We would have been like, for you Trekkie lovers, the Borg. His software package could have, you know, included a personality program, a career program, an ethics program. You just install the program, punch enter, no questions asked. But how does that sound to liberty lovers? The liberty that we have includes the ability to make mistakes, to love God or hate God, to follow God's word or despise God's word. And our love for liberty requires us to accept responsibility. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, they were given the liberty to choose, to choose to either follow God's word or to make up their own word, and they chose the latter. And like Adam and Eve, all of us have experienced our own Garden of Eden, and we have chosen in the likeness of our spiritual ancestors, and that's why the Apostle Paul says in Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And as a result, our sin-free world has become sin-stained. Our, our, the the, the sin-free natural order has become a sin-stained natural order. Our sin-free rapport with our Heavenly Father has become a sin-stained rapport with our Heavenly Father. And yet, despite our poor choices, despite our disobedience, despite our sin, God has not revoked our liberty. Now, maybe some of you are asking, okay, well, what does this have to do with the question, if God loves me, why do I suffer? Well, that's simple. For some time now, many people have been carrying around secret grudges against God. They're upset with him. They're suspicious of him. They like to pretend that he doesn't exist because there are some unanswered questions that we don't even want to think about. We don't. Questions like, why did my marriage fail? Why was my sister raped? Why did my mom die? Why did my parents divorce? Why did my business fail? Why did I lose my retirement? Why was I not accepted into that graduate school after I prayed? Why has my health failed? We, we waver in worship because we want to know why. If God loves me, why do I suffer? And I want to talk about that this morning. I want to suggest some reasons why. The first being this. Some suffering, not all, some suffering is self-induced because of liberty abuse. That's why. Uh, last spring in Ohio, a 20-year-old named Ricky Flowers led police on a car chase at speeds of more than 90 miles an hour. He finally abandoned the car, fled on foot, and successfully scaled a very high fence to escape. And he would have escaped, except that on the other side of the fence where he landed was a prison yard.
flee from God. We use our liberty to flee from God and fleeing from God with our liberty ends up putting us in the very imprisonment we wish to avoid. The imprisonment of guilt, the imprisonment of consequences, the imprisonment of self-exile. It's true, isn't it? We've been blessed this year with um, uh, a growing ministry in our uh, um, dynamic marriage ministry where couples come for a concentrated period of time to ask and discuss and learn how to be better skilled husbands and wives. And this is so important. Because you see, when when critical issues go unattended in marriage, critical issues, when there's a lack of communication that goes on and on, when there's, there's prolonged unresolved conflict, when there's dysfunctional, dysfunctional enabling parenting habits, when warning signs go ignored for years and years, and then suddenly the relationship snaps What do you think God is going to say when we ask, why is this happening? He might say this. He might say, well, have you both really tried to talk? Did you you go to a counselor, someone skilled at relationship building and behavioral personality issues? Did you seek trusted Christian friends for prayer and support? Were you faithful Were you open to self-assessment on your part of the problem? Were you expecting a quick fix or were you willing to go the distance? Did you possess a forgiving spirit, a spirit of reconciliation? Did you? Church family, if we are honest with ourselves, we would have to admit that we invite some of the suffering that comes our way. James Dobson once wrote a book called When God Doesn't Make Sense. And in it, he said, he said these hard words. He said, we we drink too much or gamble compulsively or allow pornography to possess our minds. We drive too fast and work like there's no tomorrow. We challenge the boss disrespectfully and then blow up when he strikes back. We spend money we don't have and can't possibly repay. We fuss and fight at home and then create misery for ourselves and our family. We not only borrow trouble, we go looking for it. We toy with the dragon of infidelity. We break the laws of God and then delude ourselves into thinking we've beaten the odds. And then when the bill for our sin comes due, we we turn our shocked faces to God and say, well, why me? And the fact is we are suffering the natural consequences of dangerous behavior that is designed to produce pain. Is this not why the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 6, 7, and 8, do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked, a man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please the flesh will from that flesh reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Church family, some of our storms are self-induced. We've gone on a liberty binge and we've abused it. And now we have to live with our mistakes and we don't like it. And we've just backed our trucks up against God and dumped all over him and it's not his fault.
It's our fault. And the best thing that we can do to begin healing is to do what 40 to 50 do every Friday night at Celebrate Recovery. They repeat this very first principle. I admit that I am powerless to control my tendency to do the wrong thing and my life is unmanageable. Some storms are self-induced. Would you please consider that? Some storms, not some, but not all, not all. Other storms, other suffering occurs as, as, the, as the fallout of a fallen world. You see, when Adam and Eve rebelled in the Garden of Eden, their sin unleashed cataclysmic consequences that touched the natural world. That's why God said in Genesis chapter 3, verse 17, cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. The earth is cursed. And, and Romans chapter 8, verse 22 says that creation groans, groans under the weight of sin. And we hear this groaning every time a natural catastrophe strikes. And this groaning shows up in different ways depending on where you live. For instance, years ago, the church where I used to attend in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was leveled by a tornado. Memorial Drive United Methodist Church. This this tornado descended. It destroyed the worship center, thankfully not on Sunday, and then it went back up into the sky. No other church was touched, period. Now, how do you interpret that? (laughs) Was God upset with that church? Huh? And if that's the case, will ours be next? Who knows? The best explanation, the best explanation as to why that tornado demolished that church? Well, that's Oklahoma. (laughs) That's the sound of creation groaning in Oklahoma. You know, why is the Midwest so prone to flooding in springtime? Why? Well, snow melts. Okay? And add to that a series of colliding warm and cold fronts over the Mississippi River and... It's going to flood. Why do coastal cities flood? Well, when a Category 5 hurricane smashes into a coastal city and wreaks havoc, man-made levees sometimes break. Why do planes crash? Why do planes crash? Well, because of one of the laws of thermodynamics. Things break. Things go from bad to worse. Parts wear out. Pilots make mistakes. Bad weather happens. And when you put it all together, some planes crash. And the only way to get around this is to ask God to revoke our liberty. And who wants that? 
There's an interesting conversation that takes place in the Gospels in Luke chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. Jesus asks a question of his disciples concerning an, 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 an unexplained tragedy. Jesus said those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them. He says this, do you think they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? Is that what you think? He says, I tell you no. No, unless you repent, you too will all perish. Now, if this text were taking place today, we would come to Jesus and, and we would say, Lord, you know, did you hear about the Haitians who died in that earthquake? What about those who died in the tsunami? And Jesus would look into our eyes like no one has ever looked before. And, and he would say, do you think this happened because they were worse sinners than Americans? He would say, no. No, but unless you repent, you too will perish. You see, people come to Jesus with these puzzling theological questions, and, and we, you know, we see disaster happening on someone else, and we kind of want to, you know, we, we kind of want to take a, 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 almost like a movie critic's approach as we, we try to figure out, we kind of speculate and pontificate. Now, why, why has this happened to those poor, poor souls? And, and, and instead, Jesus doesn't deal with our question. In fact, he says, you're asking the wrong question the wrong you want to know you want to know why they didn't survive that's the wrong question the question is why have you been spared we want to sound off on a problem jesus wants to deal with our hearts and he looks us in the eye and he says friend the most urgent issue is your own soul if you don't get right with god you will perish. No one spoke like Jesus and no one ever slept through a conversation with Christ, I can assure you that. Some suffering is self-induced. Some suffering occurs because this world is broken and it's been broken since the fall and we feel those re- repercussions. We feel the groans of creation, which will continue until Christ returns. And then there's a third reason why suffering happens Satan. Satan. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 8 says, Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I really believe in the existence of angels and demons. And that Satan was as a fallen angel and our adversary and an enemy of all that is of God. And sometimes suffering happens because Satan is directly behind that. I read the story about a missionary who once returned from his hut late in the afternoon, and he entered the door, and he was confronted by a huge python. So he goes and he gets out his gun. He takes dead aim and sends a bullet right into the python's head. The snake was mortally wounded, but, the, but, but did not die quickly. Instead, its body thrashed about on the floor. In fact, the missionary had to retreat outside of his quarters uh, and could hear furniture smashing and lamps crashing. 
In its dying moments, that python had unleashed all of its power and all of its wrath on everything in sight. And that is exactly what Satan is doing today. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection mortally wounded Satan. But in a last-ditch effort, he is trying to take out as many as he possibly can. And this is why Revelation chapter 12, verse 12 says that Satan is filled with fury. He's filled with fury. And why? Because he knows his time is short. He knows his time is short. See, from our perspective, we're going, how long, oh Lord? How long? Months, years, decades. But I can assure you, from God's perspective, from the cross, God says, at the point of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection, we're at the two-minute warning. Satan knows his time is short. So he's going to try to take out as many as he can. And the night before the cross, the night before the cross, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to have all of you to sift you like wheat. That doesn't sound good. But then Jesus Jesus said this. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. You understand Satan, he wants to sift some of you as well. And you understand that our Lord has prayed for you as well. He has. John chapter 17, verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am. Some suffering is self-induced. Some suffering happens because this is a broken and fallen world. And some suffering happens because we have an enemy who wants to sift us like wheat. And Jesus has prayed for us. And then fourthly and, and finally, sometimes we suffer for reasons God only knows. I think that was in the heart of the psalmist when Chuck read Psalm 10 for us. Why, Lord, do you stand far off? Why? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This has to be most frustrating, isn't it? We want to know why this has happened. And, And we think that if at least we could understand the reason, we would be at peace with our circumstances. We 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 think that. I mean, Job thought that when he suffered. In the Old Testament, Job said in Job 23, verses 3 through 5, if only I knew where to find him. If only I could go to his dwelling, I would state my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would find out what he would answer me and and consider what he would say. Has anybody here felt like that? You know, we say, God, where are you? Why don't you answer me? You know, why did the cancer kill? Why am I infertile? Why is work so crushing? Why isn't business picking up? Why has my child died? And you beg God for an audience. You want some reason, but heaven is silent. You want to know, but God's not talking. And he doesn't have to. He doesn't. And and you see this this frustration, which is a frustration I feel 
personally. This frustration reveals how conflicted I am. I say, on the one hand, I mean, I believe with all of my heart that, that, that we worship an all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present God, and yet at the same time, I don't like to hear that this all-knowing God may have reasons for suffering that I can't possibly understand. And all of our parents know what that's like, Right? All of us. I mean, if you're a parent, you you do know this. (laughs) I've told you before about when uh, our younger son, Brandon, was 18 months old. He split his lower lip wide open on a fireplace hearth. You say, where were you, Randy? I was in the room. I saw it happen. (laughs) That was a bleed or two. It was. It was. I scooped him up. I took him to the emergency room, and we were there in the emergency room. The emergency room physician said, I'm going to need your help, Dad, you know. So there we are in the emergency room, and they, they strap him in one of those, you know, papooses, right? I mean, he is strapped down. He's not going anywhere. Now, you try to tell an 18-month-old, you know, that, a perfect stranger in a white coat with needle and thread, sharp objects. You try to tell that 18-month-old that that's for his good. (laughs) See? Randy, are you saying in that illustration that we're the 18-month-old? That's exactly what I'm saying. We are. Elizabeth Elliot, whose missionary husband was savagely murdered. Elizabeth Elliot once said, God is God, and I dethrone him in my heart when I demand that he act in ways that satisfy my idea of justice. So when your suffering seems unclear, I mean, you can either be mad because you're not hearing from God, or... You can trust what he's already said. 1 Peter 4.12 Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Now now notice, notice God's word doesn't say do not grieve. No, no. It says do not be surprised. Do not be surprised. And Peter describes this suffering as a fiery test. You see, see it's the fire that helps us see how inadequate our false idols really are because your idol cannot and will not take the heat. Your money, possessions, reputation, expectations, your dream, hey, even ministry dreams can become idols which lord it over us. But they're false gods which wilt in the heat of suffering. And yet that's a good thing, it is. Because once they wilt away, you're only left with what can withstand the heat. And you know what that is? Your faith. 
your faith. This is why Peter says in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, in all of this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. See, I'm telling you, even when you don't know why you're suffering, God's word is telling you that your faith can take the heat. Now I'm thinking of uh, Mabel. Elderly lady in a nursing home. William Lane Craig, in one of his books, um, wrote about how a colleague of his named Tom struck up a friendship, an an unlikely friendship between himself, that's Tom, and then this elderly lady, Mabel. Here's how Tom describes their friendship. First time he met her, Tom said, I neared the end of the hallway. I saw an old woman strapped up in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. The empty stare and white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me she was almost deaf. One side of her face was just eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering one part of her cheek. It had pushed her nose to one side and dropped one eye. And it distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. And as a consequence, she drooled constantly. Tom says, I learned that she was 89 years old and she had been bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. This was her life. Tom said, I don't know why I spoke to her, but I did. And I put a flower in her hand, and I said, Mabel, here's a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held it up to her face. She tried to smell it, and then she said, thank you so much. It is so lovely. But can I give it to someone else? I can't see, you know. I'm blind. Tom said, of course, and, and, and I pushed her to the end of the hallway, and we found someone, and then Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. Tom said, I began spending time with Mabel, and, and one time I just asked her, I said, Mabel, what do you think of when you lie here all day? Mabel said, Jesus, Jesus. Well, Mabel, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of people would think I'm old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel started singing that old hymn. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my hope, my all. 
He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I am sad, to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. Tom wrote, how could she do this? Seconds and minutes crawl, and so do the days and weeks without human company and without an explanation of why this is happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do this? How could she be so grateful to God? And Tom concluded, he said, I think that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anybody, Mabel had power. And I want that. And if you don't know this already, Mabel's power comes from Jesus Christ whose suffering on the cross touches each of these points that I've been making here. You see, Jesus' suffering was self-induced. He didn't didn't abuse his liberty. He used his liberty, and it was self-induced. He himself said in John 10, 18, no one can take my life from me. I lay my life down voluntarily. Jesus' suffering touched nature. Jesus suffering at at his crucifixion. It was dark at noon, and at his death, the earth convulsed. At Jesus' suffering on the cross, it was Satan's unsuccessful attempt to derail the plan of God. And what's the reason for all of this? God's love. It wasn't the nails that held Jesus to the cross, I assure you that. It was his love. And and why does God love me? Well, he's God. And so Tim Keller says, Jesus suffered, not that we might not suffer, but that in our suffering, we could become like him. And so let us thank God this Thanksgiving for the gift of suffering. The gift. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we prepare to receive communion? Grant, O Lord, that in your wounds we may find our safety. In your stripes, our cure. In your pain, our peace. In your cross, our victory. And in your resurrection, our triumph. And a crown of righteousness in the glories of your eternal kingdom.
in your name. Amen.